Welcome back to Show Me Today. Navigating the legal system can be daunting. Missouri Nets Bob Pretty and Farrah Fight from the Missouri Bar Podcast talk to St. Louis attorney Jeff Button. Today's topic, veterans law and social security disability. It's all part of the Missouri Bar's program, Is It Legal To? And more than 8% of Missouri's population is veterans. That's a full point higher than the national average. And many of these veterans are facing issues such as disabilities, homelessness, bankruptcy, foreclosure, child visitation, custody, and support payments. Or problems with drug and alcohol addiction or long-lasting stress disorders stemming from their service. That's right. All of these issues are not only personal matters, but they are also legal matters. So we've invited one of our frequent volunteers at the Missouri Bars Veteran Clinics to join us today to talk about veterans and the law. Jeff Button is a private practice attorney in Creve Coeur, specializes in veterans law and social security disability, and he's been on the National Organization of Veterans Advocates Board of Directors. So Jeff, welcome to our program. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us, Jeff. Wanted to touch base first on the history of veterans benefits. We know that benefits for veterans in general go back more than 225 years in this country to benefits for wounded veterans of the American Revolution. Can you give us some historical background on the country honoring our veterans? As you said, veterans benefits go back to the Revolutionary War era. They became really active after the American Civil War. And ironically, after the American Civil War, there was an act that happened in 1888. And in 1888, Congress decided that no veterans representative could make more than $10 in representing veterans. Now, Justice Stevens in 1972, looking at the history of veterans law and that fee provision said that $10 was an approximation of about $1,500 in 1888. And what had happened to cause this was there were a lot of people, because they could read and fill out the two-page veterans form, were taking this outlandish sum, $10. And Congress just thought that was egregious and decided that they were going to limit benefits because veterans shouldn't have to pay to have representation. That caused these service organizations to come into being. So think the Disabled American Veterans, the American Legion, the Veterans of Foreign Wars, and they developed what was called veteran service officers because you couldn't find an attorney, unless you had a friend who was going to do it pro bono for you, to represent you before the Department of Veterans Affairs because they couldn't be paid. And that statute stayed the same for about 100 years. And that's why you didn't see lawyers involved in veterans cases until Congress in 1988, subsequent to the Vietnam War and Subsequent to a lot of complaints from Vietnam-era veterans about not being able to obtain representation, decided, all right, we're going to let attorneys get involved once we've given the VA one shot at it. So we, you can get a fee after the veteran's gone through the administrative process, and we're going to create a new court. And they created a new court. It was an appellate court, a specialized appellate court that would review veterans' cases. And the VA was one of the last federal agencies to have any kind of appellate review. Prior to 1988, if you were a veteran and you didn't like what the VA did, you had nowhere to go. You had no court to go to. You just had no... No right to appeal. No right to appeal to any court. Wow. You just had to go back to the VA and try again. Well, that kind of sets separate veterans apart separately, it seems to me, and their constitutional rights to access to the courts and, and their constitutional right to... Well, their rights... Is that, is that the way of putting it? Yeah, in 2006, the law was further changed. So, as I said, in 1988, 
you had to go through the entire process. And what became readily apparent to those of us who practiced after that change and to the court and to Congress was that really you needed to get advocates involved at an earlier stage. Getting them involved at the very last stage in appellate review was not fixing anything. The VA was just not changing and they were very hesitant. The VA, by the way, most people don't realize this, it's the second largest federal agency behind the Department of Defense. It is a huge agency, predominantly because of the medical centers and the number of employees that they have there. The Veterans Benefits Administration, which administers the decisions on things like education, vocational rehabilitation, and then also on compensation and pension, they're only about 20% of the actual total agency staff. So only 20%, one in five staff are dedicated to what you just said, more of the administrative rights benefits, where four out of five are dedicated to providing healthcare services. Yes. There's also smaller entities within the VA. So the one that comes to mind is the VA Cemetery Administration. So also managing those cemeteries, that's a small portion of the number of employees. So it isn't exactly 80%. It's less than that. But by far, the largest organization is the Veterans Health Administration that runs the medical centers. How broad is uh, veterans law? How many categories of veterans law are there? The area that I predominantly practice in, which is compensation. Compensation, sometimes people refer to it as service-connected. The statutory term is actually compensation. And then there's also what's called pension. Now, pension, a lot of people associate with the nursing homes, because if you are in need of nursing home care then, and you served during a period of war, you're entitled to a pension. That is normally called non-service-connected. There's a whole host of benefits. So there's education benefits available. During our most recent war, Congress changed the GI Bill to be a little more inclusive and allow for payment of greater benefits for education. Kind of hearkening back to that GI Bill after World War II that allowed a lot of people who might not have had the means to go to college and get a degree. There's also vocational rehabilitation. So if you've been injured in the line of duty on active duty, you can get rehabilitated by the VA. There are also survivor's benefits. And that's for survivors of veterans who meet certain criteria. In general, if you've died from a service-connected condition and you're the widow, you can apply for a benefit. Now, is it going to be as lucrative as the veteran's benefit? No, but it's a recognition by Congress that as a thanks of the country for your service, we will make sure that your widow has a benefit if you die of a service-connected condition. Healthcare is an interesting animal. There is what's called the Mission Act, and the Mission Act was passed during the Trump administration. The Mission Act was in response to veterans not being able to get timely health care through the VA Health Administration. The Mission Act was designed to allow veterans to seek private care in a set number of circumstances. And those set number of circumstances were geographic. If you lived more than 75 miles away from a VA health facility, and they were time. So if you couldn't see the specialist, and it varies by specialist what the time limits are, that you then, with a referral from your primary care physician at the VA, could go seek private care out in the community. So the idea behind the law was very good. It was to allow veterans to procure community health services. 
What's been the reaction? In some quarters, what the reaction, according to this investigation by USA Today, and confirmed anecdotally by people I've talked to, is that the VA is hesitant to send people out because it takes money away from their people and their organization. You can appeal these decisions, and the VA Health Administration is not used to having people appeal anything. They are very unused to having people appeal. When this law was about set to go into enactment, VA had a working team. I happened to be in a group, the National Organization of Veterans Advocates, that had one of its training seminars, and one of the sessions we had was run by a very experienced practitioner who had worked for Paralyzed Veterans of America, and it had the gentleman from VA who was responsible for kind of overseeing the appeal process that VA was implementing with the health administration. The experienced attorney in the room, decades of experience, had done, as I recall, two healthcare cases in her career. That was the experienced person in the room because most of us didn't have any experience asking the healthcare administration to do these things. But I will say this, the veterans do have a right to appeal some of these healthcare decisions. They certainly can't appeal a medical diagnosis, a medical conclusion, but they can appeal these healthcare decisions that are being made and how they're able to access care through the VA as a result of the Mission Act. Is there a flow chart for veterans that helps them understand, or at least I'm trying to visualize everything that you've just outlined to us and all the entities within the broader federal organization? Like, I, I don't, I feel like I need a roadmap to, <laughs> to really grasp how big this is and where those different trails go. And if you get denied here, how this is the path that you go to appeal. Is there any sort of resource or is that why having an advocate from this, the beginning is so important? So I think having an advocate from the beginning is important. Unfortunately, that law that changed, if you want to pay a private attorney, you do have to still wait for a first initial denial. So you do have to file, and the VA has become uh, much more form-centric. Everything has a form. Now, can you find the form on the VA.gov website? I would say maybe if you know what you're looking for. A lot of times, if you get what's called veteran service organizations involved at the initial level, that is one of the key things they help you with, is they get the right form so that you're not denied just because it's not on the right piece of paper. And you're not just on what we affectionately call the gerbil wheel, spinning your wheels and going nowhere. And it's very frustrating. So your question was, I believe, is there a roadmap? The VA has a website, and I find it usable because... I've been doing this for 29 years. I'm not sure how usable it is to the ordinary veteran who is trying to file their claim for the first time. I do think having an advocate, whether that be a veteran service officer, whether that be, you know, in this state, we have the University of Missouri at Columbia that has a law clinic that will help with cases. There is uh, an organization called the National Veterans Legal Services Project that also will pair you up with an attorney who can help you pro bono with your case. There's also something called the Pro Bono Consortium that will help you. The ABA has a website devoted to veterans and has a resource that links you to people who are willing to help. The sad fact is the last time I looked in Missouri, you mentioned that 8% of the population is veterans. 
for every one of me who's trained and an, an accredited attorney and does the compensation and pension piece, there's around 6,000 veterans. And I'm a solo practitioner. I cannot represent 6,000 veterans. So I rely upon these other organizations and these other resources because the veterans really need help. It's, it's very complex. And when we talk about the appeal process and the benefits side, you'll see just how complex it gets. More topics from the Missouri Bar available at missourilawyershelp.org slash is it legal to. Show me today. Show me today.